Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. This week I've been sharing about the love of God. That's what I always teach. I just put a different title on it, use a different scripture, but I'm talking about how God loves us. And specifically, we started talking about redemption, which Ephesians 1, 7, Colossians 1, 14 says redemption is the forgiveness of our sins. And it says that it's a past tense thing. Most people don't have that concept. They think that God can forgive sins. And even Christians believe that their sins have been forgiven to a point. But then every time they sin, they have to get redeemed again. They have to get forgiven again. They can't have any unconfessed sin in their life. Or they possibly, the extreme is, they go to hell. Or a lesser version of the same thing is, God won't bless you. God won't fellowship with you. God won't use you if you have any sin in your life. And what that does is just totally paralyze you because the truth is all of us have sin. All of us fail. Not always in the big things, but at the very least we fail to do the things we should do. Romans 14, 23 says, To him that knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. So sin is not only the things you do that are a direct transgression of a commandment, but sin is what you should be doing that you're failing to do. And in that sense, we all fail. None of us love our wife the way that Christ loved the church. None of you women reverence your husband the way that the church is supposed to reverence Christ. None of us think of other people and love other people more than we love ourselves. Philippians chapter 2. We just fail in these things. And as long as you think that you're only forgiven momentarily and that every time you mess up, you got to get under the blood and go back and repetition the Lord and get redeemed again and born again again, your life is going to be neutralized. Any effectiveness in your life is going to be over. You can't maintain a good relationship. It's not that you'll doubt God that He exists. You'll just doubt that He loves you, that He can tolerate you because you fail all of the time. And so Satan uses this to bring condemnation and uh, a sin consciousness on us. So I used the Hebrews to show that we are eternally redeemed. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, that we have eternal inheritance. Hebrews 9, 15, that we should have no more conscience of sin. Hebrews 10, 1 and 2, that we have been sanctified and perfected forever. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 and 14. Man, that's powerful. We also talked about Isaiah 52 and 53, the price that Jesus paid for our sins. Some people think, well, you're just saying that sin isn't a bad thing. Sin's a terrible thing, but I'm saying that the sacrifice of Jesus and the price that was paid is greater than the debt that was owed. We have not put the right emphasis upon what Jesus has done, and so we've tried to really glorify the extent, the price that Jesus paid for us, and we talked about that. And all of these things that we talked about leads to another question, and that is, well then, what about the commands that unless you do this, I won't bless you. You ha- who's, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in my presence? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul unto vanity. You know, I was ministering in uh, uh, Apache Junction, Arizona one time. And I was preaching my heart out on the grace of God. And I could just tell that people, you know, the lights were on, but nobody was home. I could tell that people weren't going to walk in this. And so 
After four days of preaching on this, I got up and Sunday morning, I turned over and read that psalm. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in the presence of the Lord? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. And I started saying, how many of you are living the way that you should? How could you expect God to move in your life if you aren't seeking Him, if you aren't living holy? And man, people just started crying and repenting and... I said, you know what? I just got up and violated everything I've been teaching you for four days. And the people stopped me. I said, that's not true. Well, it's in the Bible. But what I was dealing with today is that there is a difference between the way God deals with us under the old covenant and the way He deals with us under the new covenant. And people haven't understood this difference. People will sing songs like from Psalms chapter 51 about creating me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. We sing songs about that. David said that. And you know what? It was appropriate for David to say that because he wasn't a new covenant believer. But for you to, as a born again believer, to say, create in me a new heart. You had a new heart created. You're asking God for something he's already done. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And yet you're asking Him not to take your Holy Spirit. Those are wrong prayers. Those aren't glorifying God. Those are hurting you. There's a difference between Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. The Scripture says that they longed for the day that you and I live in. And yet most New Testament believers are longing to go back and have what David had. So this morning I started talking about out of Galatians chapter 3 verse 12, we are redeemed from the curse of the law. We talked about that. We used Deuteronomy chapter 28. We used Hebrews chapter 7 and chapter 8. As a matter of fact, let me go back and start here by looking at Hebrews chapter 7. I was thinking about this this afternoon and I quit right before two scriptures that really just summarize what I was trying to say this morning here in Hebrews chapter 7. We were talking about how that because the priesthood has changed, Jesus isn't a, a Levitical priest. He was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Therefore, it said there had to be a change in the law. Look in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 12. It says, For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. And what he's talking about is we are redeemed from the law. We aren't under the Old Testament law and system of approaching God. And let's skip down to verse 18. It says, For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. What a radical statement. A disannulling, the word disannulling literally means cancellation, is what the word literally means. It means to nullify. That would be the closest word that we would use to this. It just, it makes null and void. The Old Testament law has been nullified. It has been canceled. It is done away. The New Testament believer is not supposed to live under the law, and yet the average New Testament believer is very law-oriented and conscious of, oh, I failed in this, and oh, God, forgive me, and we're afraid that He's going to curse us instead of bless us. If I was to stand up here and start preaching on, man, have you done this right? Have you done that right? You know, the vast majority of you, and I'm not saying this to criticize anybody, I'm just saying I know where the body of Christ is. The vast majority of Christians would come under all of the guilt and under all of the condemnation 
of you not doing everything right when the truth is that the Bible says there is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. And yet the vast majority of you, I could make you condemned, I could make you repent. And it's wrong. We don't know what we've got. And that's the reason that Satan has made us ineffective. It says in verse 18, For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment, that's the Old Testament law, going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. The law was weak and unprofitable. It was a stopgap measure. It never was God's perfect plan for man. That's why he waited 2,000 years after the fall to give the law because that wasn't his first inclination. It wasn't his best. And that's why Galatians chapter 3 says that the law was only given temporarily until faith in a Savior could come. We've been approximately 6,000 years Since the fall of Adam and Eve, the first 2,000 years were without law. There was a 2,000 year period of time where there was law. And then at the appearance of Jesus, He redeemed us from the curse of the law. The law has been nullified, disavowed because of the weakness and unprofitableness of it. And so over this 6,000 year period of time, there's been 4,000 years that God has been dealing with people outside of law, outside of punishing them for their sins. And yet for the last 2,000 years, the body of Christ hasn't known this. We've gone back and preached the law and men have lived under condemnation, not enjoying the relationship that Jesus purchased for us because of our own conscience condemning us. Boy, those are radical statements. But that's exactly what this is saying. In verse 19, it says, "For For the law made nothing perfect, But the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. The law couldn't make you perfect. But the New Testament does make you perfect. We studied that already. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 and 14. You are sanctified and perfected forever. Hebrews 10, 12, 23 says it's your spirit that was made perfect. You are perfect. The bringing in of this new covenant made you perfect. In your spirit, you're perfect. It says over in um, 2 Timothy, I think it's 2 Timothy, it's either 1 or 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. It says that there are, let me just turn over and read this to you because I won't be able to quote it exactly. This is over in one of the Timothys. I'll find it. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling. Vain jangling is old English for saying they're just saying stupid, worthless, idle words that mean nothing. You know, I'm not against people, but I'm saying that there's so much being done today. You know, I watch Christian TV. I'm on Christian TV, so I'm not against it. But there is a lot of junk on there. And I've watched some stuff on TV where people are frothing at the mouth and screaming and yelling and glory to God. You have to put an uh on every word. And you have to do something. And I have people all the time complain, you aren't anointed. And you aren't excited. I'm excited on the inside. You just can't see it. 
But, you know, we've got this religious thing to where people shout and run and jump and they're wild and they're screaming. And I'm not against that. I'm not against that. I enjoy it. We have our meetings. We have people that dance, run, shout, do all kinds of things. I enjoy it. I'm not against those kind of things. But I'm saying so much of what's called Christianity today is just vain jangling. There's excitement. There's enthusiasm. But you can't take it to the bank. You can't live off of it. It's not going to change your life. They aren't teaching the Word. It's all emotion. I don't care how high you jump as long as you walk straight when you hit the ground. Amen. (laughs) You can jump just as high as you want to, but you need to have some stability in your life that you aren't going to get if you don't know the truth. Boy, if you have moved away from preaching the grace of God and preaching the gospel, then I don't care how loud you scream or what you do. It's vain jangling. It's just foolishness. And it says in verse 7, Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. A person who is teaching the law doesn't have a clue what they're saying. When a person says, you got to be holy, and if you aren't holy, God won't bless you. Boy, you are setting a trap for yourself. Scripture says that you will bear your own judgment, whosoever you be. If you're preaching that unless you do everything right, God won't bless you, you have just hung yourself. You are hung by your own tongue. Because I can promise you, you aren't going to do everything perfect. You are going to fail. And when you do, instead of the blessing and the mercy and the forgiveness of God, you'll reap the judgment that you've preached. Nobody can live by the law. Nobody can live by the law. Paul said that none of our fathers were able to live by the law. None of them. That's the reason that God established a better way of approaching God. We have been redeemed from the law. There is a disannulling, a nullifying, a cancellation of the law because of the weakness and unprofitableness of it. It never made anybody perfect, but the new covenant does make you perfect. Why would we want to go back and be under the law? In Galatians chapter 3, he says, You foolish Galatians. If you look the word foolish up in the Greek, it literally means stupid. You're stupid. Why would we want to go back under the law? And then he says, who has bewitched you that you would want to go back under the law? It's demonic deception. I know some people think I'm over the top, but this is what the scripture says. I don't believe I'm the one that's strange. I believe it's our culture, our religious culture today that's strange. I can guarantee you the Apostle Paul, if he was here talking directly to you, he would make me look like I was a wimp. He would make me look like I was compromised. And I guarantee you the Apostle Paul would not put up with our religious system that we have today. It violates all of Ephesians, all of Galatians, all of the book of Hebrews. It violates the covenant. It violates the revelation that was given unto him. It's wrong. So he's saying that they desire to be teachers of the law. People who say that you got to be holy, if you were to sit down and say, are you holy? Well, I'm not perfect, but at least I don't dip or cuss or chew or go with those that do. They begin to compare themselves with other people. But the Bible says if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all, James 2.10. So people who are preaching to be holy, are they perfect? They'd be the first ones to tell you no. Well, then... They can't, by their own preaching, they can't expect anything from God. They say, well, I'm not perfect, but when I fail, I depend upon the mercy of God. uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 6 says, You're either saved by grace without works, 
or otherwise grace isn't grace. Or you're saved by works without grace, otherwise works is no more works. That's the old English way of saying you're saved by grace or by works, but not by a combination of the two. It's not you do the best you can and then ask God to make up the difference. You can't mix it. If you add anything to Jesus, if you add your own holiness and say, well, I believe I have to have a Savior, but I also have to be holy or I can't do these things, then you have just polluted and corrupted Jesus. You add anything to Him, it takes away from Him. It's faith in Jesus alone or you have to be 100% perfect and holy on your own. Since you can't be holy on your own, you need to quit trusting in yourself and just trust in a Savior. And if you've got a Savior, then you don't have to trust in yourself. Man, those are strong statements. In verse 8 it says, But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Now this is New Covenant. There is a right use of the law. What's the purpose of the law? See, I don't disagree with using the law if you'll use it for what it was intended for. The law made nothing perfect. We just read that over in Hebrews chapter 7. But the bringing in of a better covenant did. The purpose of the law, Romans chapter 3, is to show you that you are a sinner, to give you knowledge of sin, to condemn you, to beat you down. It was not to save you. It was to show you your need for a Savior. So this is what he's talking about. There is a right use of the law. You want to know what it is? In verse 9 it says, Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and for disobedient, for for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, uh, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for manstealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, etc. The law isn't made for a righteous man. Who's righteous? Any person who's born again. You have been made the righteousness of God. If somebody says, well, all of my righteousness is like filthy rags. Again, another Old Testament scripture, Isaiah 64, 6. All of our righteousness is like filthy rags. If you say something like that, one of two things. Either you aren't born again, and so your self-righteousness is like a filthy rag. You ought to be born again. Or if you're born again, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, that Jesus is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Jesus is your righteousness. So if you've been born again, and if you say all of my righteousness is like a filthy rag, you're calling Jesus a filthy rag. I know a lot of people don't like me to get in your face like this, but I'm trying to say that, you know what, there's wrong thinking, there's stinking thinking in our lives, and this is the reason that we aren't getting the right results. Everybody wants better results, but they're afraid to change the way they think. It's insanity to do the same thing and expect different results. If what you've got isn't working, it's time to change. And I'm sharing scriptures with you. Here's the right use of the law. It's not made for a righteous man. If you've been born again, the law isn't for you. The purpose of the law is to drive you to God and to show you your need for God. The law was given for people who were self-righteous, thinking that I'm really a good person. I'm, I'm better than this person over here. And so I believe God's going to accept me because I'm not like this public and I fast twice in the week. I pay tithes of mint, anise, and cumin. That's what the Pharisees said. 
The law was given for Pharisees, people who thought that they were good enough so that God owed them salvation. People who thought that their good would outweigh their bad and God would have to accept them. They were ignorant of the fact that it doesn't matter if you have the slightest grain, if you have ever failed, if you've done anything wrong in your life, you miss. You fail. You go to hell instead of to heaven. It's not God grading on a curve. It's not God accepting the top 10%. And if you'll do the best you can, you can get in. No, God's standard is perfection. And if you aren't perfect, you are going to hell unless you have a Savior. And so this whole concept of, well, I believe I'm a pretty good person, relatively good compared to other people, that was sending people to hell. And so God needed to bring you out of your deception. God needed to show you that, no, you can't depend upon yourself. You can't trust in your goodness. You can't think that God owes you salvation. And so God gave you such a high standard. He gave so many commands. He gave so many things that He told you to do that if you understood the law properly, it would make you despair and say, God, if this is your standard, have mercy on me, a sinner. He says, good, that's where I wanted you, amen. He says, that's what I wanted to do is have mercy, but I can't have mercy on you as long as you're trusting in yourself. You've got to throw myself, yourself on my mercy. You know, I ministered in uh, Houston, Texas one time, and I was in a hotel room, and there was about two or 300 people at the meeting and there was a man that walked by the doors and he sat and listened for a while and then he came in and sat down. And about halfway through my message, he stood up and started yelling at me. And this guy was either drunk or high on dope or something, but he was incoherent. I tried to answer his question and he wouldn't respond and he was causing problems. And so finally I just said, I command you to sit down and shut up in Jesus' name. And he just plopped right down. <laughs> so I went on with the service and after the service... I started talking to him and trying to tell him about God loves you and whatever it is that's going on in your life, God can set you free. And I said, it doesn't matter. You could be delivered of this dope or delivered of alcoholism. And I was telling him about the love of God. And this guy looked at me and he says, I don't need any of that. He says, I am God. And when he said that, you know, there's so many scriptures that say that every one of us have an intuitive knowledge in our heart that there's only one God and we aren't Him. He was lying. He was deceived. But you can get into mind games. You can listen to your own propaganda so much that you begin to believe it. And you know how you bring a person out of deception? The law is given to show a person their need for God, to make them fall flat of their face. So I started out ministering the love of God, but when he was taking that and saying, I am God, I took the law and whittled this guy down to a pulp. I just beat him. I said, you stink in the nostrils of God. And I started using Old Testament scriptures to show this guy that, man, the wrath of God is upon you. You aren't worthy to be spit on. Man, you are vile in the sight of God. And I took the word of God and within just moments, this guy who was God was on his face crying, Oh God, forgive me, and realizing he needed a Savior. Now if you use the law like that to show a person that you know what, you need a Savior. You can't save yourself. Go for it. That's the purpose of the law. 
but to take a person who has already come to the Lord and gotten born again and start saying, man, you haven't done this. God won't bless you. The reason he's not answering your prayers because you haven't done everything right. God's upset at you. God's not pleased. You can't get this. You can't get healed until you start doing this. Then you are totally misusing the law. The law is not to help you. It's to shut you up under the faith that is afterwards revealed. That's what it says over in Galatians chapter 3. I'm basically paraphrasing. The law was like a schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. But now that you've come unto Christ, you aren't under the schoolmaster. You graduated. You're promoted. Get out of school. Quit letting the school marm beat you over, over what you're doing wrong. Man, now you've come to Christ and you don't have to do that anymore. Man, that's good news. That's awesome news. Look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. There are hundreds, maybe thousands of scriptures on this. This is I'm not taking a few isolated verses and trying to make a point. This is well established, grounded in scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, this is talking about if you are born again, you are a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. It didn't say all things are passing away and becoming new. It says it's a done deal. That isn't true in your physical body. It's not true in your mind, in your soulish personality part. If you were fat before you got saved, you're still going to be fat after you get saved. If you were stupid before you got saved, you're going to be stupid after you get saved. That part hasn't changed. But in your spirit... You are a brand new person. Old things have passed away. In your spirit, you are redeemed. You have eternal redemption. And John 4, 24 says, God is a spirit. God is looking at you in the spirit. And in the spirit, you are sanctified and perfected forever. Eternal redemption. Man, what a wonderful, wonderful statement. It goes on to say in verse 18, and all things are of God. Talking about in your spirit, all of the things in this newborn again person are of God who hath, past tense, already done, reconciled us unto himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Jesus reconciled people. The word reconciled means to make friendly again, to bring into harmony. Like you take a bank statement and here's your account and here's what the bank says and you have to reconcile them. You have to make them come into agreement. You take the strings on a guitar and you reconcile them to each other so that they play in harmony instead of out of tune. We have been brought back into harmony with God. We are now friends of God. That's what Jesus did. He took people taken in the very act of adultery and he said, it's sin. He says, go and sin no more. He didn't say it's all right. He didn't say it's okay. It was sin, but he reconciled them to God and said, go and sin no more. I don't condemn you. He extended mercy to people in the very act of adultery. And it says that that's the same ministry he gave us. The church has not been representing God properly. We've been out condemning people and telling them the wrath of God is on you and God is going to judge America. That God has forsaken America because we forsook Him. People say if God doesn't judge America, He's going to have to repent and apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah because we've become just about as ungodly as Sodom and Gomorrah. But you know, I say that if God does judge America, He's going to have to apologize to Jesus because Jesus bore our sins and God is not judging America. 
So somebody says, so it's just okay for America to go the way it's going? No, we're destroying ourselves. We are giving Satan an inroad. And I guarantee you the reason the terrorist attacks have come and the reason so many things... You know, the hurricanes and stuff that have hit, people say, well, that's the judgment of God. No, that's us. We forsook God. We walked away from Him. We're on our own. And that's the results of us living under our own protection. If we were dwelling under the shadow of the Almighty, if we were drawing on His power, then the Lord would supernaturally protect us from things. It's not God who has deserted us. We've walked away from Him. It's like God has an umbrella here saying, I want to protect you and shield you from all of the things that life throws your way. And if you'll stay under the umbrella, man, the rain doesn't hit you. But you get out from under the umbrella and then get mad at God. Why did you cause that rain to fall on me? No, God had His umbrella here to protect you. You walked out from under it. There are consequences. I'm not saying that America is going to survive because God's not judging us. We are in the process of destroying ourselves. And if America doesn't turn back to the Lord and begin to start doing some things differently, we will be destroyed. America is not going to last at the direction we're going. I believe that things are turning around. I believe that God's going to use me and a lot of other people to help turn some things around. So I'm not preaching doom. But I'm saying God isn't the one that's judging America. And it's wrong when you sit there and say God sent Hurricane Katrina. If God sent Katrina, why did He stop at New Orleans? Why didn't He move on to Baton Rouge or Dallas or Chicago? How about Los Angeles, one of the porn capitals of the world? Why didn't He destroy it? I guarantee you, when God's judgment falls, and there is coming a time when this grace is over, and then God is going to... Uh, bring in His kingdom and He is going to judge and stuff. And when that happens, nobody will have to wonder, was this the judgment of God? You'll know that it's the judgment of God. People will be crying for the rocks to fall upon them and stuff. I guarantee you, if God was judging us, um, we'd know it. You know why all that happened in New Orleans? Because they built a city below sea level. And then, to add insult to injury, they built a lake up above that and put dikes there to hold Lake Pontchartrain back. It was just stupid. In 1910, people died from a hurricane. And what did they do? They rebuilt it. So in 2005, there was hundreds of people died. What are they doing? They're rebuilding it with the same mindset. Peanut brains thinking we can overcome nature. We can overcome this. It's just a matter of time till it happens again. And then somebody 30 years from now or whenever, if the Lord tarries, will blame God again. And it's not. It's the, it's the people who built the city below sea level. Stupid. If you build your house on the sand, don't get mad at God when it gets washed away. You aren't using the brains that God gave you. Is that too subtle? I'd like to tell you how I really feel. but So in verse 18 it says, All things are of God who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. And then in the next verse, it tells you what the ministry of reconciliation is. It says to it, that's old English for that is, that God was in Christ reconciling 
the world unto himself. How did he reconcile? How do you make friends with God? How do you become friendly in harmony with God? Well, basically religion would say, well, you, you don't dip or cuss or chew or go with those that do. You live holy. You start doing this. You go to church. You pay your tithes. Nope. It tells you. How do you reconcile people to God? It's, he didn't impute man's trespasses unto them. He didn't impute. The word impute is an accounting term. It means to put on the ledger or to record on the books. God doesn't hold sin against you. How could He do that? He had to redeem us from the law that did hold men's sins to them. The Old Testament law was all about condemnation. You know, I wish I had time. I've got a tape, a book out there entitled The True Nature of God that, that deals with this for five or six hours. I wish I had time. But I can show you scriptures. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six. The strength of sin is the law. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six. The law didn't strengthen you in your battle against sin. It strengthened sin in its battle against you. God gave the law to help sin. Some of you think, it's heresy. How dare you say that? That's a scripture. 1 Corinthians 15, 56. Have you got that up there? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. That's what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7 says that the law, the ministry of condemnation... Let's see. Put that up there or either I'll turn over here and read it, one of the two says, but if the ministration of death written and engraven in stones was glorious. It calls the Old Testament law a ministration of death. In the New Testament, Jesus came to give us life and to give us more abundantly. Satan is the author of death. It calls the ministration of, of uh, death is the thing written and engraven in stones. That's talking about those Ten Commandments. If that was glorious, and there was a good part to the Old Testament law, but it says that what we have now is so much greater The Old Testament law was so glorious that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. That's a a verification that the Old Testament law was to pass away. In verse 8 it says, How shall not the ministration of the Spirit, that's the new covenant, be rather glorious? It's even better. Verse 9, For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, that's another reference to the Old Testament law. It was to condemn Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. The Bible says God isn't condemning. And yet most people are condemned. You know, condemned is a religious word that a lot of people don't understand and they, they just kind of get bogged down because it's a theological term. The simple explanation of it is like if you condemn a building, they go in and say, That building isn't fit for use. You can't use it anymore. That's what condemnation is, is a feeling that you're unworthy, that you're unfit for use. If you feel condemned, it's not God who's condemning you, it's the law that's condemning you. That's the purpose of the law, is to show you that you can't save yourself, you need a Savior. The purpose of the law is to make sin come alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 56, to kill you. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, to condemn you. Verse 9, that's the purpose of the law. 
And yet people embrace it as, Oh God, thank you for giving me this wonderful law. The law wasn't given to help you. The law was given to help your enemy. Sin. Somebody says, Why would God do something like that? Because the truth is, sin had already beaten you. You were already defiled. And you didn't know it. You thought because you compared yourself among yourself that you were all right and God would have to accept you. And so God needed to bring you out of your deception. So you know what He did? He just strengthened that sin so that... I don't know if you understand this or not, but when, when you tell somebody, Thou shalt not do this, God didn't make you to live under that kind of thing. There's something on the inside of every person that hates to be told you can't do it. And when somebody says, thou shalt not, something on the inside just rises up. It's that old sinful nature and it says, bless God, I shall. Amen. (laughs) And God knew you were like that. And so for those of you who thought, you know what, I've changed. I've turned over a new life, new leaf. I'm a different person. I really don't really need a Savior anymore. I'm okay now. I fixed myself. God says, you need to be brought out of deception. So all he did is just say, thou shalt not. And I guarantee you, you will go to lusting for the very thing that you are commanded not to do. You know, if you don't even like chocolate, I don't know how you live, but if you don't like chocolate, (laughs) all I'd have to do is say, I'll give you a million dollars if you'll go a year without eating chocolate, but thou shalt not eat chocolate. Thou shalt not think about chocolate. And if you lust for chocolate in your heart, you void this thing and you won't get it. And even if you didn't like chocolate, if I told you that you had to do this in order to obtain a million dollars, I guarantee every person in here would go to lusting for the very thing I told you not to do. That's just the way that it works. You know, when we were kids, I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand this. When you were kids, you did this. If you wanted to get somebody to do something, all you had to do is say, you can't do it. I remember teasing kids and saying, you're a sissy. You can't do it. I remember this kid, we were trying to get a walk across a a log. We put this log across a creek. And we knew he was going to fall in. So we dared him to fall. And he, oh, no. And I said, I double dog dare you. You know, in Texas... If you double-dog dare somebody, you got to do it. And sure enough, the guy fell in. He knew better. He didn't want to do it. But all you got to do is say, Thou shalt not do it. And something on the inside of you is going to make you do what you were commanded not to do. I was preaching this on a tape, and a preacher was listening to me, and he was in his study. And he just kind of sat back and looked out his window, and he had his son out in the backyard playing with some neighborhood kids. And he thought, I'll just test this out. And so he went to the back door... And he opened up the door and he called all the kids in. And he says, you know, you've been playing fine. Everything's fine. But whatever you do, thou shalt not spit on this flower. And then he closed the door and went back in and looked out the window. And he said, those kids had played for an hour and didn't even know that that flower was there. But the moment he said that, he said, half of those kids walked over and spit right on that flower. And the other kids sat there with their mouth just salivating, wishing that they were bold enough to spit on the flower. All of them, all of a sudden, had a lust to do what they were commanded not to do. 
That's why God gave the law. God didn't give the law to break sin's dominion and to help you. And oh, what a wonderful God to show me step one through 10,000, everything I must do. No, God did it to take away your deception that you could ever be good enough and that you would claim that God, now you've got to move through me. God said, you think you're holy? You think you're righteous? Let me show you what righteous is. Let me show you what holy is. Thou shalt not. And the purpose of it was to kill you, to condemn you, to make sin come alive. You'd start lusting for things. And you'd say, oh God, man, I'm, I'm just sinful. I'm evil on my own. God have mercy on me, a sinner. And he says, good, that's where I want you. Just come and let me give it as a gift. That way he gets all of the credit instead of you getting the credit. It says over in Romans chapter 3, verse 27, 28, it says, Where is boasting? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. You know what will make you humble is when you understand that you are a zero with the rim knocked off. You are absolutely nothing. God doesn't owe you anything. That will exclude boasting. And that's what the law was intended to do, is to show you that you don't deserve anything. If you got what you deserve, you'd go directly to hell. You would not pass go. You wouldn't get $200. You'd just go straight to hell. I have people come up in prayer lines all the time and say, it's just not fair. I'm doing everything. I pray, I fast, I study the Word, I pay my tithes. Why hadn't God healed me? You know what you're saying is, look what I've done. How come God hasn't done this? What you're saying is you believe that God responds to you and to your worth and to your goodness. And if you got what you were really believing for, you would go directly to hell. And somebody said, but I'm really a good person. Compared to whom? Compared to what you used to be or compared to me or compared to somebody else? The Bible says, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the minimum requirement. If you aren't like Jesus, then you need Him to be your Savior. And that's what the law was doing. It was trying to show you that you can't save yourself. And instead, somehow or another, we've embraced the law and made it like this wonderful thing that God gave us. You know, if I wanted to bring you to a place to where you... Say, say somebody in here is just so athletic, you think you can do everything. Man, you can do anything. You trust in your ability. And here you are sitting next to a couch potato that you're looking down your nose at them, that you know what, you couldn't even jump off the floor an inch if you had to. I'm, you aren't like me. If I wanted to bring you out of that deception and bring you to the end of yourself, all I'd have to do is come in here and say, all right, you know, get a gun or something. And say, every person in here, I'm going to shoot you unless you can jump and touch this ceiling. And you know what? You might be Michael Jordan. You might be able to jump higher than most people. You might jump higher than anybody else in here. You may be better than everybody else, but nobody in here can jump and touch this ceiling. If I put that as the minimum requirement, we're all going to die. And it doesn't matter if you're a couch potato or if you're a Michael Jordan. You're, we're all going to die. And if, if you really understood that, you'd say, well, man, that's not fair. If that's what I have to do, have mercy on me. That's what God was trying to get you to do is to come to the end of yourself and quit trusting in yourself so that you'd just say, oh, God, have mercy on me. 
It's one of the slickest deceptions that the devil ever put across is to get the church to embrace the law and preach that unless you do this and this and this, God won't bless you and this is the reason your prayers haven't been answered and this is why God won't use you is because you got some sin in your life. I want you to know God's never had anybody qualified working for Him yet and you aren't going to be the first one. God uses us in spite of who we are and not because of who we are. God loves us because He is love and not because you are lovely. Amen? It's the mercy and the grace of God. He gets all of the credit. And yet, it's so easy to fall back in this because a large portion of the Word is law and is legalism and is condemnation. That was the purpose of it. And if you aren't careful, if you don't understand things properly, you can go back and read this and fall back into that performance mentality, even though the Scripture makes it so clear that there is a total disannulling, that that thing is gone, it's passed away, that we are redeemed from the curse of the law. It makes it very clear, and yet we just choose to ignore the new covenant realities and we go back under this legalism. Plus, our physical world operates off of condemnation and performance. You know, you can't go to your employer on Monday and say, hey, I heard this guy preach about that it's all grace and my performance isn't what does it, that God loves me in spite of who I am. So I just want you to know that I might or might not come to work and I might or might not do a good job, but you know what? God loves me and I expect my pay. I expect raises. I expect bonuses. You tell your boss that and I guarantee you he'll fire you because he deals with you based on performance. You spank your kids, correct your kids based on performance. Your husband and wife, they don't love you by grace. They should, but they don't. I've talked to hundreds of people in marriage counseling and they come in and I say, you're supposed to love your wife the way that Christ loved the church. He died and gave himself when he commended his love toward us in the while we were yet sinners. So it doesn't matter if they're doing what's right or not. You're just supposed to love them. Well, but... And then they'll tell me what they did. They think that, you know, that only works to a degree. But if they did this, I can't love them. They, basically, people give their mate what they deserve. If you give your mate what they deserve, you'll get a divorce. There isn't any mate that deserves it. You don't deserve it. And if you start dealing with each other just on performance, that's the reason we have all of these problems. We need to start learning to operate in grace. So what I'm saying is even our marriages, our society, the law, the jobs, everything is on performance. And yet here God is saying, I love you independent of your performance. It's not about keeping that. And so it's easy to fall back into this. I guarantee you, it takes a major effort to get this revelation of grace and walk in it because there's no role model for it outside of the Bible. And even part of the Bible was performance-oriented to show you that you hadn't got a chance and it's been misinterpreted. And so it takes a lot of effort to sit there and understand the grace of God and be strong in the grace that is in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's easy to fall back into. And I personally, it's my, it's my experience that you don't just get this revelation. And then you never have a problem with it. You see it, and now it's over. 
It's kind of like, you know, when it's cold outside and you get around the fire and you start feeling the warmth of that fire, you have to keep that fire stoked and you have to keep it going. If you let it die down, that coal's out there and it'll be not long before you start feeling that cold hit you. You got to keep that fire going and keep it built up. It's the same thing. You have to keep this revelation of the grace of God going because, man, there is just this condemnation, performance coming from every direction, and uh, it takes effort to maintain that and keep it going. You know, there was a time when Jamie and I first got started in ministry, and we pastored this little church in Pritchett, Colorado. We saw a man raised from the dead there, and there was only 10 people in the church, and all of a sudden we started having 100 people out of 144 people in the town come to church. And people were coming, and I was praying for people day and night, and we were seeing some good things happen, but I didn't even have time to eat. I didn't have time to study the Word. I never spent any time praying. My relationship with God was being put on the back burner because everybody and their dog came by and wanted me to minister to them. And so I realized I needed to spend time in the Word. And so I made a promise, God, tomorrow I'm going to spend all day fasting and praying and studying the Word just for me. And I intended on doing that. But you know, before I even woke up, people came and knocked on my door and woke me up and somebody had a problem. So I started praying, but I was praying for people again. And then people came by and I opened up the Word and I was explaining and ministering to people. And it went all day. And at noon, a guy came by that I'd been witnessing to and he wanted to take me out to eat. And I thought, man, this could be the day this guy gets born again. And so... I was hungry because I didn't have breakfast. So I went out to eat and I ate more than I normally did because I was hungry. So I broke every promise I made to the Lord. I didn't pray except to pray for people. I didn't study the Word except to minister to other people. I ate when I said I was going to fast. And that night I was driving over to this Bible study by myself. Jamie's uh, family was there. And so I was driving 45 minutes over to this Bible study to do a Bible study and as I was going over, I just felt so bad, like, oh, God, every promise I made you, I broke every one. And I started having scriptures come to my mind. You know, Satan can quote scripture. He quoted scripture to Jesus. He translated some of our Bibles. And so I started having scriptures come to my mind. And I had this thought about all liars will have their part in a lake of fire that burns forever. It's better not to make a vow than to make a vow and not pay. And man, I was just feeling so condemned. And I got to where I was crying and I was trying to drive and cry at the same time. And I, oh God, forgive me. I'm sorry I failed you in all of these things. And then I was getting close to this Bible study and I said, but God, what about the people? Don't let the people suffer because I didn't do everything right. Oh, God, please. Just do it because you love the people. Even if you don't love me, use me <laughs> because you love the people. And I still didn't feel any confidence or release. And so I just kept praying. And finally, I said, oh, Father, just do it because of who Jesus is. And as soon as I said that, the Lord said, who did you think I was going to do it because of? <laughs> And all of a sudden, I realized I had fallen back into thinking that I had to fast and pray and study the Word and do everything right for God to use me. You don't ever just get this. You learn it and then you take a step forward and then before you know it, you've been corrupted because everybody else is operating in legalism and, and you fall back and then the Holy Spirit will remind you and you just keep taking steps and moving towards it. You don't ever get it figured out. 
It takes effort. But man, the Word is so clear here that God has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Look over in Romans chapter 3. Here's some more verses on this. Romans chapter 3. In verse 19, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law. Well, that's quite a simple statement. You know what this is saying? The law wasn't given for everybody. It just was given to some people. The law was only given to the Jewish nation. It was never intended to be for the Gentile church. And yet the Gentile church has embraced the Old Testament law and has preached it and we've come under, again, like I was saying this morning, selective parts of the Old Testament law. We believe we don't have to do certain things anymore. Paul totally ended this deal about circumcision. He made such a big deal out of that that we don't preach that anymore and we don't preach that you have to keep the feast days and that you have to offer blood sacrifices and that we don't need a priest. We've come through some of it, but you still have to keep parts of it. It's amazing how the church has embraced the law and most of us. Many of you may be receiving what I'm saying. Some of you are probably struggling with this because, again, it's been just ground in you from the time you first got born again, from the first time you ever darkened the door of a church that you had to perform. You had to live holy and do all of this stuff. It was never intended. That Old Testament law wasn't intended for us. It says, Whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law. And here's the purpose of it that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty. The law was given to make you guilty. Did you know the first thing that psychology will do when a person has mental problems and they put you in a mental ward? First thing they'll do is take the Bible away from you. They will refuse to allow preachers to come in and see you. You know why? Because they recognize that religion is the source of guilt and guilt And condemnation is what drives people to insanity. And the first thing they'll do is separate you from religion. And you know what? I'd agree. Religion, the way that it's preached, is the source of guilt. And it's what makes people feel so terrible and drives them to a lot of things. That's the purpose of the Old Testament law is to make you guilty. It was supposed to drive you to the mercy of God. And once you receive the mercy of God, then that supersedes. It nullifies, cancels, disannuls this condemnation. But sad to say, most people just live under it. They hear about the grace of God and start mixing it with law and therefore they don't ever get the release of it. And so the purpose of the Old Testament law was to make you guilty before God, to stop your mouth from having all of these excuses. Like today, our society is just masters at saying, it's not my fault. It's my dysfunctional family that I came from. I was abused when I was a child. You don't understand. It's this person, if they would give me more money, if the government would do something else for me, it's somebody else's fault. I don't have any responsibility. It's my hormones. It's my chemicals that make me do this. We are masters at blaming anybody and everybody else. You know what the law will do? If you want to come up here and start telling me about why it's not your fault that you're such a jerk, I could take the Word of God and I could whittle you down and show you that, man, you're the one that made the choices. Regardless of what people have done to you, you were the one that responded the way you did. You have a choice whether you become bitter or better. 
The Word of God will stop all of your excuses so that you quit blaming everybody else and it makes you take responsibility for what's happening in your life. You can't blame somebody else. Amen? And then, once you realize that, oops, it's not somebody else, it's me, it'll make you guilty. And the purpose of this is so that you'll quit trusting in yourself and you'll ask for salvation. And there's some people who just can't handle this. You know, I said something on the television recently about something that I had done and how that because of my wrong teaching, I was teaching on this sovereignty of God, teaching that God controls everything, and I was teaching against that and saying that at one time I believed that and I actually was instrumental in teaching this person that God uh, gave us cancers and things like this. And this girl prayed for a cancer and died because of the teaching that I gave. And I was using that as an illustration, saying that, you know what, at one time I believed this. And I was showing how important it is to believe the right thing. Well, somebody wrote me an email, and I mean, they, they meant it good. They were feeling compassion for me. Oh, how dare you think that? How dare you think that it's your fault? They had a choice. It was their choice. You have nothing to do with it. Don't feel bad. You've been persecuting yourself for 40 years and all of this stuff. And you, you're, I know you've got these hurts and burdens and you need to let God heal you of all of this kind of stuff. You know what that is? That's a person who cannot accept responsibility. The way they deal with life and failures is to just make sure that it was somebody else's fault. They can't handle that they've messed up. Once you understand grace and you understand that God forgives you, I can admit that, you know, the other person had a part to play in this. I'm not saying that everything was my fault, but I can accept responsibility. I've done some dumb things. I've done things that were wrong. I've done things that have hurt me and have hurt other people. And I'm not, I'm not warped, hurt because of it, because I've got forgiveness. Because of the mercy of God. I don't have to sit there and deny that I have ever done anything wrong so that I can feel good about myself. And there's a lot of people that just can't face that. They, they have to say that it's the other person. So they go ahead and get a divorce. It's the other person. And then you go get another one and you marry them and find out that you have the same problems. And you wonder why. Because you, you got a person that was totally opposite. You thought you solved it. You got the opposite of that other person that was all of your problems. And yet you have the same problems. You know what the problem is? It's you. You're the only constant in all of those relationships. And you just won't accept that you're the problem instead of somebody else. Don't shout me down because I'm preaching good. In verse 20 it says, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law makes you sin conscious. It shows you sin in your life. It is meant to amplify sin. It's meant to make sin come alive and be bigger. It focuses your attention on sin. And yet the New Testament shows that we should look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, that we should think on things that are honest and pure and lovely and just and of good report if there's virtue and praise. The New Testament teaches us just the opposite, that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. If you think that, oh, I'm an old sinner saved by grace, and if you are just a terrible, vile person on the inside, and if that's the way you see yourself, you know what? It's going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy, and you will eventually live it out. 
you might give token resistance to sin, but after all, you're an old sinner saved by grace, so you just give in after a while. But if you could understand that I was an old sinner, but I got saved by grace, and now in my spirit I'm sanctified and perfected forever. I'm righteous and I'm holy and I'm pure. I'm redeemed. Eternal redemption. And if you start seeing yourself that way, you'll wind up living holier accidentally than you ever did on purpose before because you'll see yourself as a new creature. But if you see yourself as this vile person, you'll wind up living vile. Pretty simple. And so in verse 21 it says, But now the righteousness of God without the law. (laughs) What a radical statement. Did you know that we read this today, and again, these terminologies, law, most of us don't even use that except referring to the police officers or something. In religion, most of us don't talk about this. But this was talking about the system of commandments, and you got to do this in order to get that. And if you don't do it, you're going to be cursed instead of blessed. That's what it meant. And to the religious Jews of Paul's day to think that you could be righteous in right standing with God without keeping all of these laws, I guarantee you this is the reason that people stoned him and left him for dead. It's the reason they beat him with rods. It's the reason they beat him with whips. It's the reason they did that. It's the reason they killed Jesus because he came preaching right standing with God without you being holy. He he accepted tax collectors and, and harlots and told them that they could serve Jesus. Mary Magdalene was a harlot, prostitute. Demons came out of her, and Jesus, she was one of the ones that followed Jesus, and the religious people couldn't handle it. They can't handle it today either. The statement that you could be in right standing with God without keeping all of the things of the law just drives people up the wall today and is an indication of how far from the true gospel Our religious system is today. The law was not given to produce salvation. It was given to make you guilty, to stop your mouth, to give you a knowledge of sin, to make sin come alive, to kill, to condemn. All of those things. I've read scriptures to you tonight. That's the purpose of the law. In the next verse, it says... um, In verse 23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's what I've been talking about all this week is redemption, forgiveness of sins, past, present, and future, eternal redemption. Jesus has redeemed us from sin. The debt has been paid, not just up until the next time you sin. All of it, eternal redemption. You have been redeemed from the law. We are no longer under the law. Radical statements. Radical statements. Man, there's some other great things right there. Let me flip over to chapter 7 real quickly and read a few of these verses. Romans chapter 7. And in verse... um, Verse 5, it says, For when we were in the flesh, this is talking about before you got born again, the motions of sins which were by the law. The law gave motion, or you could say traction, to sin. Sin didn't really have any uh, hold over you until you started hearing, Thou shalt not. 
And all of a sudden, man's sin just rose up on the inside of it. He'll say that again right here in this chapter. The motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law. I've already used tonight, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18, that, that the Old Testament law has been disannulled. It's passed away. There's so many other scriptures that we've used. We were redeemed from the law. Galatians 3.12. Here it says, We are delivered from the law, that being dead, wherein we were held. Talking about your old man, your old nature. The law was given for your old man. Now that your old man's gone, you aren't under the law. That's what the first few verses of this chapter we're talking about. That a woman is bound to her husband as long as the husband's alive. But if the husband's dead, she's free to be remarried. Your old man's dead. So you aren't under this anymore. Amen. We are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Some people think that I hate the law. No, I'm not against the law. The law was good. The law had a purpose. It was to show people who didn't know they needed a Savior that you need a Savior. The law is good. If you'll use it for what it was used, what it was meant for, it's only bad if you use it to try and make people love God through the law. The law doesn't make you love God. It makes you fear God and think that God's angry at you and it drives you from relationship. It'll drive you to your need for God, but it doesn't give you relationship with God. I'm not against the law. Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, the commandment, the law gave sin an occasion, an opportunity against you. It wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. That's talking about that the law wrought in you. All manner of concupiscence. Concupiscence is uncontrolled, unrestrained lust. The law causes you to lust. You lust for what you are told that you can't have. It says, It wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law, sin was dead. What a strong statement. If people understood this, you know what most people do? If they see that People are committing adultery. You know what the average minister will do is start preaching against adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery. If you commit adultery, and they'll take scriptural examples, and they'll show you the wrath of God, and they'll say thou shalt not, and they'll preach against it, and without knowing it, they are making the people lust for the very thing that they told them not to do. You go to preaching against adultery, and you'll have a rash of adultery. That's what these verses are saying. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. The law made sin come alive on the inside of you. Man, that's just amazing. You know, you could take a picture of, like just imagine this bull in a pasture who's, you know, got a bull attitude, it's mean, it charges everything that walks through that pasture and then this bull gets convicted that I shouldn't be this way, I shouldn't be mean. And so this bull decides, I'm going to change. And so from now on, I'm not a bull, I'm a sheep. And it lays there chewing its cud thinking, I'm a sheep, I'm a sheep. 
Did you know what? You can't change your nature by just choosing to change and thinking that all of a sudden you've changed. You might deceive yourself, but you still got the same nature. And if you could imagine a bull thinking that it was now a sheep, man, there's something weird about that. There's something wrong about that. And it, you would be doing that bull a service to bring it out of its deception. So how do you convince a bull that it's not a sheep? Just wave a red flag in front of it. And all of a sudden that old bull nature rises up and it charges and it says, Oops, you know what? It didn't work. I'm still a bull. I need to be born again to become a sheep. Well, that's what God did. There was people thinking, you know what? I've overcome. I'm no longer a bad person. I've made a New Year's resolution and... So I know now God's going to accept me. God needed to bring you out of your deception. God needed to show you that, hey, you still got a sinful nature. It doesn't matter if you never sin again. You've already blown it. You need a Savior. How do you bring people out of that deception? Just say, thou shalt not. And all of a sudden that, that sin nature rises up and says, who's telling me I can't do this? And you go to lusting for the very thing. Sin comes alive and you die. That's what the law was given to do. And when you go to preaching on law, thou shalt not do this, that's exactly what it causes in people. Makes them lust for it. You know, I ran a race one time, a a 10K race, 6.2 miles, and I had turned in a personal record already. I had run it faster than I'd ever run, and I was doing pretty good, and I was about a quarter of a mile from the finish. And... um, you know, my wife or any of my staff will tell you I'm a competitor. I, I love to compete. My dad taught me that second place is first loser. <laughs> I get no satisfaction out of being second. I'm not a bad loser. I don't get, you know, I think I've got my priorities right. It's not like I get mad or discouraged, but I've just never thrown a game of anything. When my kids were a year old and we played tiddlywings, I beat them. Amen. I beat them bad. I told my kids, if you ever beat me in a game, you'll know that you beat me. I've never thrown a game of anything in my life. I'm a competitor. So here I was. I was running and I'd put in my personal best and I just was wasted. I'd given it all I had and this guy started to pass me. And he could tell that as he started to pass me, I tried to keep up with him and I just didn't have any energy left and he started pulling away. And he got about a yard in front of me and he looked back over his shoulder and real sarcastic, he says, you could do better than that. And you know, that's just like him saying, you can't do it. And I don't know what happened, but it's like the Incredible Hulk Something happened on the inside of me. Boy, my adrenaline got to flowing. And I mean, I just sprinted past that guy. I beat him to the finish line by a hundred yards. I don't know where that came from. Other than just somebody says, thou canst not do it. And you know what? Bless God, I show him I can do it. And you laugh at me, but you know what? Every one of us is that way. When... When the law says you can't do it, it just makes you rise up and say, bless God, I'm going to do it. Amen. And so sin revived and I died. In verse 10, and the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. That's exactly what 2 Corinthians 3, 7 says. It was a ministration of death. 
written and engraven in stones. It was ordained unto death. For sin, taking occasion, by the commandment deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good. That sin, by the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. That was the purpose of the law, was to show you your sin, to to condemn you, to make you guilty, to stop your mouth, to make sin come alive, to strengthen sin, to kill you, to condemn you. If you don't like those results, then get out from under the law and start living in the redemption. We are redeemed from the law. We are redeemed from sin. Sin has been paid for. Jesus paid a greater price than what the debt was. It's taken care of. God isn't angry at you. He's already done this. We're already one with the Lord. You don't have to pray and, oh God, please move in my life. He already loves you. He's already done these things. We just don't know what we've been redeemed from. We don't know the depths of our redemption. Basically, most people today believe that God can do things, but He has done nothing, and they are in the process of beseeching God to do what He's already done. This week I've been trying to share with you that God's already done it. God's already set you free. You are already one with the Lord. God already loves you. I have people come all the time and say, Would you please pray that God would just pour out His love in my life? And I say, No. I won't do it. People think, Well, what's wrong with that? You're implying that God is the one that hasn't poured out His love and that it's up to Him. The Bible says that God has already committed His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God so loved the world that He gave. God has put the fruit of love, joy, and peace in your life. If you don't feel the love of God, it's not God who hasn't given. It's you that is dead. It's you that is believing a lie. It's you that isn't listening to the truth. So if you come to me and say, would you please pray that God will pour out His love in my life? God's not the one that needs to move. God's already done it. What I'll pray is, oh God, help them to understand what you've already done. Help them to see that you already love them. If you want to pray and say, oh, please pray that I'll just have a wonderful relationship. Please pray that God will anoint me. The Bible says God has already anointed you. He that hath anointed us is God. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. You don't need to pray for anointing. What you need to do is recognize that you've already been anointed. You don't need to pray for faith. People are saying, oh, I know faith works. I just don't have any of it. The Bible says you have the faith of the Son of God on the inside of you. You have the same quantity and quality of faith that Jesus has. You don't need faith. What you need to do is find out what you've got. Uh, Philemon chapter 1 verse 6 says, I pray that the communication of your faith will become effectual. That means it will begin to work by the acknowledging of every good thing that's already in you. You don't need God to give you faith. You just need to go to recognizing that He's already given you faith. Find out what are the laws of faith. How does it work? And start cooperating with it and draw it out. It is so much easier to draw out what you already have than it is to beg God and try and get something that you've already got. It's confusing. You know, if I gave you my Bible, and if you had my Bible, and then you come up to me and says, could I please have your Bible? Would you give me your Bible? 
I really need your Bible. Could I just borrow it for a while? What, how do you respond to a person that's asking for something that you've already given them? I don't know how I'd respond. I'd probably just look at you, not knowing what to do. I'd probably just be silent, similar to the way it is when you're saying, Oh, God, please move in my life, and you don't hear anything. If God could be confused, I believe He'd be confused. We're praying, Oh, God, heal me. I'm sure that he looks... Didn't I, didn't I write it someplace in that book that by my stripes they were healed? I know it's in there somewhere, amen. We're asking God to heal us. He says, I've already healed you. We're asking God to bless us. You're already blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're asking God to love us. God's already loved you. He commended His love towards you in that while you were yet sinners... We're asking God to prosper us. It says He's already blessed us and given us all of this prosperity. He'll bless whatever you set your hand unto. We're asking God to go heal people and He told you to go heal people. He told you to take His authority. We're saying, oh God, please get the devil off my back. He told you resist the devil and he'll flee from you. We're asking God to do things. We're saying, oh God, please come and meet with us. Go with us as we leave this place. He says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And we're saying, oh God, please come. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with God. We're saying, oh God, send revival. He already sent revival. It's in you. He told you to go out and these signs would follow you. We're asking God to do miracles and touch people. And He told you to go touch people. And you work miracles. Man, it is really simple. It's really simple. I hope that this week has helped you to see that God has already done His part. He's redeemed us. And all we've got to do is renew our mind and begin to start finding out what we already have. And the communication of your faith will become effectual when you start acknowledging what God has already done on the inside of you. Amen? Isn't that good news? Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. You know, if you haven't made Jesus your Lord, you can get in on everything I've been talking about tonight.